When I consider the ingredients for effective leadership, I find myself thinking about understanding trends, either in the sector or in society writ large, that will impact or change or shape how you lead. And I know that in your world, it's hard to keep up with this. It's easy for it to head to the back burner or fall off the stove altogether. So I thought I might be helpful by focusing an episode on this very subject, a dose of context and trends from a person who curates the leading voices in the sector and is one himself, and who presents insightful and thought-provoking articles to those of us committed to the power, impact, and possibility that the social sector presents to a society that really needs us to do our very best work. A publicist friend of mine once told me that he turned a client down, and I asked why. My friend said, this guy wants to be a thought leader, but after an hour-long conversation, I realized he really didn't have any thoughts. I thought that was funny. So today, a conversation with a leading expert on the social sector, and I promise you, this guy has thoughts. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. For over 15 years, Eric Nee has served as the editor-in-chief of the Stanford Social Innovation Review. SSIR is an award-winning magazine and website that covers cross-sector solutions to global problems. SSIR is written by and for social change leaders from around the world and from all sectors of society, nonprofits, foundation, business, government, and engaged citizens. Its mission is to advance, educate, and inspire the field of social innovation by seeking out, cultivating, and disseminating the best in research and practice-based knowledge. It produces a quarterly magazine, website, webinars, podcasts, and conferences, all serving leaders of organizations engaged in social change. Eric has journalism in his DNA and joined SSIR from Fortune, where he was a senior editor. He is an author, a frequent contributor to SSIR. Eric is a graduate of UC Santa Cruz, and he has a master's of journalism from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Eric, I am delighted to have you here today. Well, thank you, Joan. I'm happy to be here as well. Nice to be considered a thought leader. I I don't usually think of myself quite in those terms, but uh, I guess when I step back and think about the role that I play, you know, I do actually have some insight into some of the trends, given the position that I have here at SSIR. Well, I think you saw yourself short after just even a brief conversation a few weeks back. It's clear that you have thoughts, and I Mm -hmm. look forward to sharing them with the folks that are listening. To provide some context to your role at SSIR, tell folks about what you see as the mission of SSIR and what you love about your work that I didn't really capture in the description, perhaps. Sure. Well, let me maybe just start with the last part of your question. You bet. As you mentioned, I've been at SSIR for 15 years. But what people can't tell from a podcast is that I'm older. Um, I turn 68 next month. So this has been something that's been an important part of my life, but actually not 
something uh, that I've been doing for most of my life. One of the reasons that I get excited and really love this work is that it combines a number of things, parts of my life in, in interesting ways. So I started off, I'll just give you a brief, a little bit more of a bio. I think often Please. people are kind of interested, like, where's this person coming from, right? As I love that. Would say. <laughs> so I grew up during the 60s and then early 70s. I was of draft age, had my number. Fortunately for me, it was a high number, so I didn't actually have to deal with the question of would I join or not. But it, it got me to thinking about you know, the Vietnam War and why would I be going? And I was always sort of an intellectual kid. I'm a child of a professor. And so that sort of set me off on a journey about thinking about society and America's role in the world. And why is there poverty? Why are there people that are fighting for liberation? And so by the time I went to college, I was quite active and thought of myself as a socialist. And was very active in an organization called New American Movement that over time merged to become what's now known as Democratic Socialists of America, uh-huh. a big organization that AOC is a member of, as you know, a number of other people. And, and I was actually on the executive committee of uh, New American Movement for a while. I was doing labor organizing. I worked for a number of years as a uh, nursing assistant because doing organizing in, in hospitals and nursing homes and community organ Anyway, I think you get the picture. So I was doing that for quite a while and, and until it got to the point where I was like, I can't do one more bedpan. Um, and <laughs> I need to find something that challenges me more intellectually, which is why I decided to go to journalism school. Got it. And went through journalism school, was from the Bay Area, came back to the Bay Area in the early 80s. And that was right at the time that the tech revolution was happening. So I spent the next 20 years of my life covering the technology industry. And it was an interesting time to be doing that, right? This was when Apple introduced the Mac before um, the World Wide Web. Um, so I kind of grew up covering as well the the, the blossoming of Silicon Valley and, and the way that technology impacts our lives, innovation. And it kind of gave me a different sense of uh, what capitalism could be, um, hmm. and and when and what innovation can be, and so when I left Fortune after the uh, dot com bust around yep. 2000, I was looking around for things to do, and SSIR had started um, in 2003. I joined in 2006, and the reason that I came and what attracted me and what still keeps me engaged is that it combines these two parts of my life that had been kind of disparate. One uh, part of my life was very concerned and active in areas around social justice, environmentalism, racism, labor, and the other part all around innovation. How do we use markets to, you know, to, to bring forth new, new things that might be valuable to people? And so that's been kind of, SSIR was, was, was very embryonic when I came, but it really was kind of about that. And, and for me, it was the perfect marriage of those two things, not to mention that I love journalism, I love magazines, and this is a place that where we do all of that. So a couple of reactions to it. First of all, how lucky you are. 
right? It is, is you never know where the path is going to take you. And you like to think that the path will connect in some way that integrates the kind of skills and interests you have over a period of time. And sometimes that happens with intention and sometimes it doesn't. But if you find your way there, it's a, it's, uh, excuse the pun, it's really quite good fortune. <laughs> um, um, so how, that was my first reaction. This, I think my second reaction was listening to you talk about who you were during the Vietnam War and recognizing how the nonprofit sector exploded at that time, that so many of our nonprofits came as a result of folks just like you who were just not comfortable sitting idly by. And in fact, actually, it leads to it actually leads to a trend in the sector and in society in general. But for those folks that are involved in social change, we have a whole universe of people who are your age who are saying, okay, I think I might be done. So so the, the social sector is seeing more resignations and more people who are retiring, but it is because of what the Vietnam War and those protests ignited in people. And I just wondered if you wanted to reflect on that. I think you're right. And I know many people uh, like you describe, um, and me being one of them, right? I mean, right? I am, I'm, I'm heading up uh, a publication you know, at that age where they're, they got involved in this, we got involved in these issues because we cared about them. We built organizations. Um, now we're at a time where we're thinking of, you know, handing it off to, let's, let's say, the next generation. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to let go. I mean, I'm thinking about this for myself personally. It's like, well, it's just one more year because I got these things that I really think are important. And before I give it off, I like I really want to make sure this gets in place. And then that that's my plan, you know, kind of. And but then I'm sure, you know, in a year from now, I'll be like, well, and at some point you do have to let go. Yeah. And do that thoughtfully. And so often, you know, that doesn't happen with thought, you know, I don't want to be the kind of, you know, sports figures are notorious for this, right? They they don't know when to retire, right? Yes. And I think, you know, in some cases maybe in the nonprofit sector, we're equally guilty. And, you know, just speaking from our role as an editor of SSIR, we've, we've run numbers of articles lately on, in fact, a whole series on succession planning. Yes. And, and not just succession planning, but specifically on this question of, you know, how do people that are founders and CEOs or EDs or whatever of organizations hand off to the next group of people. And it's not just us. Bridgespan did some interesting work, research, um, and, and yep. thinking on this question, too. We actually have, SSIR has a, a book division, let's call it, that we do at Stanford University Press. And one of the proposals we're looking at now is a book on this very subject. Fabulous. I think, uh, you know, and, and there's lessons one can learn from the business world, but it's a different, you know, it's different than businesses, you know, because we are mission-driven organizations. Absolutely. And I think that often these founders, you know, do have a lot still to to give. So maybe finding creative ways to do that that yes. aren't necessarily as a head of the organization. You know, that's a whole subject. I mean, we could talk about, but I think <laughs> I think it's an important one that that the sector as a whole is is facing. How do we do this well? Right. Yes. That involves not just the 
the head of the organization, it involves the boards, it involves the funders. Absolutely. I I actually think that leads us very nicely into a discussion about trends, because I think this is actually one of them that certainly I see, and I obviously you as well, is this, you know, the growing, the, these, these folks who are coming to the end of their tenure or should be coming to the end of their tenure or, and, you know, leaving gaps. And are those organizations actually strong enough to, to navigate the tumultuous time that a leadership transition demands? And so maybe we come back to that when we talk, maybe we'll end up talking mm-hmm. a little bit about the great resignation and the opportunity that that presents <laughs> for those folks who um, are not lucky enough to combine what they are passionate about with their living. So Eric, let's say I'm a, a, a nonprofit CEO and I'm up to my ass and alligators just running my organization. Um, I want to use this time to help folks lift their gaze. Talk a little bit about some of the trends that you see in the social sector that CEOs and board leadership should be mindful of as they, as they think about their strategy over the next year, the next two or three years. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I know our listeners would as well. So what are the trends that you're seeing? Are there, are there you know, a few that really come to mind for you? Yeah, so I think you know, the challenge is to distill them down, right? So how do you, <laughs> what are the most important ones? I mean, I think one that's certainly on everybody's mind and, and for good reason is this question of equity, diversity, equity, inclusion as, you know, DEI shorthand, although there's a lot of people that don't think that's an adequate description of what is really going on or is necessary. I mean, justice, I think, uh, should be added into that. Yep. Some people add joy, right? I mean, this shouldn't be all just sounds like you're eating your, you know, it's all uh, sort of, I won't say negative, but disruptive, right? Although it is disruptive. I think that's an issue that's long overdue. You know, another one is, I think, changes in philanthropy that that were maybe had been beginning, um, but were actually accelerated during COVID. And I'd say, say the equity is, is, uh, is falls into that camp. And then Maybe the third one we can talk about, and we can go through these, you know, is around technology. And, you know, part of that is my bias because I live in Palo Alto uh, in Silicon right. Valley. And so I just like sag in the water and I covered it for a long time. But I do think it's, it's if you look outside of the nonprofit sector, technology is disrupting everything. And it's certainly fair to think that it should be disrupting the nonprofit sector, although it maybe hasn't as much as it should have. So maybe we can just go back to the start with the equity question if you want. Does that make yeah, sense? let's do that and and tease out what you think. What are the implications of this this conversation that is obviously in the social sector in such a big way? And I, you know, I, I it's, it's very clear that power dynamics and the sort of the model of funding and that there's some real systemic issues in how the nonprofit model is actually designed and how people execute against it. So what are you seeing about DEI or actually the, I forget, I did a keynote speech where people talk about it as JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and then some people add the B for belonging. What do you see as the what are you seeing out there in terms of the implications and 
and how I, as an executive director, navigate this new world, recognizing that the fundamental model of the nonprofit is in some ways quite problematic. Yeah. Well, the the question about the, the nonprofit model, that's a big question. Let me just try to zero in on, on the equity issue just a, Please. a little narrower. I mean, I think, I mean, it's quite obvious that this is a question that is long overdue. I mean, it's been it's been in the in the air, right? I mean, people kind of give voice to this, right? Well, we of course, you know, are concerned about equity, but but when you when you get under the covers and you actually look at the work that organizations are doing, or who makes up the organizations, who who makes up the leadership of the organizations uh, themselves, um, who the funders are, overwhelmingly, um, it's been you know reflects all the inequities of our society. So, you know, white people do dominate. There's a bit more gender equity in the nonprofit sector than there is in the business world, but it's still not, I think, where where it needs to be, particularly when you're looking at the the top ranks of the largest organizations. And so, I mean, I think you're talking about both external work, right? What What are organizations doing? But you're also talking about internal dynamics and organizations and you know, kind of circling back to the what we were talking about early about this sort of baby boom generation, you know, creating a lot of these nonprofits, assuming leadership. Much of that was white, right? Yes. Um, and I'm white. People maybe know it or don't know it. You're white. I mean, it's, uh, I think, you know, in looking at, at our organizations, that's been a big fail for many white-led organizations is to is that there, there hasn't been enough attention paid to racial uh, diversity and and equity and inclusion uh, within their own organizations. And so then quite naturally, the issues that that these organizations focus on, we miss things, right? And there's issues that we don't see or we don't see them in in the way that people um, who are not white uh, see them and experience them, um, which leads to the programs that we have in place, how the programs operate, are the dynamics we have with the communities that we're trying to serve, um, you know, power dynamics that exist. I mean, it's a very complicated question, right? Um, but one that I think people are now, whether they want to or not, having to deal with. I mean, you're my parents were in the arts, so I pay a lot of attention to arts. And, you know, there's been organizations, you know, in the theater community, in dance, et cetera, that have come up with a set of demands, right? Like, yes. And people are like, wait, why are you making demands on me, right? Well, it's because you haven't done enough to change. And I think it's, you know, it's really shaking things up. You know, when you talk about the, the nonprofit model, of course, and we have the funders, and I'm not talking about individual, do- you know, small donors, I'm talking about big foundations and big donors. And then there again, you know, these, if you talk about people with wealth, of course, that reflects society. So these are primarily white people, although, you know, in the case of some important organizations like Ford and others, you know, they're led by people of color, but they still, you know, the when, when the funders themselves are people that are, you know, white, how do you change that, right? Well, that's, yeah, that kind of segues into a discussion of philanthropy that we can get into. But I think, you know, that's where it's going to be more difficult, I think, to get 
real change going on because what's to force them except goodwill to actually make changes? Um, I, it's not clear. Are you um, are you seeing are you seeing organizations either specifically or more generally that are shaking things up and doing some things differently that give you hope in this area? Well, yes, I think I think there are. So not to pick on, I did sort of pick on foundations, um, but <laughs> you know I think there are there are foundations that are really making significant changes in that area. I mean, I think, you know, the Ford Foundation, I mean, you think about Ford, right? What's the legacy of Henry Ford? Well, very anti-Semitic, racist. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to go down the list, um, but, you know, it's now headed by, uh, you know, a Black gay man who grew up poor, right. right, from the South. Henry Ford would probably just like roll over, right? As they say, roll over in his grave. You bet he um, would. And and so and and I think the Ford Foundation is really taking under Darren a leadership role on these questions and and talking about issues about uh, racial justice, of course, um, but also uh, disability. They they've really taken a leadership role on that. And when we talk about equity, we you know, the, the focus these days is on race as it should be, but, you know, there's issues of gender, uh, sexual orientation, uh, ability, and class, right? And and I think, you know, that all need to be addressed. And I think having people that are leaders, right? It, leadership is important mm-hmm. um, in this sector, and particularly leadership from large organizations like Ford, I think, uh, I think you can't overemphasize how important that is that people look to that for guidance, like how do we do this? And, yes. and so I think he's, you know, I love reading his letters when he puts them out. And Darren's also on the board of the parent organization that we have at Stanford. We are part of Stanford University for people that may wonder. We didn't just expropriate the name for <laughs> uh, our own purposes. We're part of this thing called the Center on uh, Philanthropy and Civil Society, and, and it has an advisory board, and Darren is on that. And, and it's I've, I've loved talking to Darren when I get the opportunity about these questions, because I think, you know, not that they're perfect, but in, in all sorts of ways, and it's not just on equity, it's also on, on funding and leaning in on um, uh, movement toward more general operating support. It's yes. also on... You know, there was a big question, which people have kind of forgotten now, but, you know, the beginning of COVID is like, how much should, should foundations contribute? Should we do more than the 5%, right? And Darren really took a leadership role on that that I think was good of, of saying, hey, I can borrow money, right, because of our assets at almost 0%, right? I don't know yes. what they ended up doing, but they got, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think they they raised a couple billion dollar bond right, at almost no interest in order to fund, uh, of course, they have to pay that back. But, right. um, but, but, you know, as he has, he, he used to work on Wall Street, and as he believed, and it's turned out to be true, you know, equity markets have exploded the last couple of years during COVID. And that's a whole nother right. discussion, right? <laughs> Some people are on the streets, and other people are rolling in more money than they ever had. But you know, he took advantage of the low interest rates to to raise money to to 
spend more during a time when or nonprofits critically need it. I could go on, but I think you asked for an example. I think Ford yeah. really is an example of a funder that is both is is shaking things up um, in a lot of different ways that I think are important. So let's talk a little bit about technology. I have been swimming in these waters with other podcast guests about the need for the social sector to uh, really embrace technology in a different kind of way and in a sense that the sector is kind of behind the eight ball. And, uh, and I think the question that I, that I would pose is not unlike the question that I could imagine being in the minds of some people talking about DEI work, which is, you know, I really want to do this work. I don't know how, and I don't have the resources to do it well, right? And I think that that technology also, you will hear people say, I don't disagree. We should we should be embracing technology more robustly, but that means resources. And that points to a sort of a picture I have of the sector, which is one that operates much more from a scarcity model than from one of abundance. And so to talk to me about sort of technology and where you see the sector today and where you sort of like to see it go with regard to tech. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the techno that the nonprofit world is behind the business world in terms of its use of technology. I don't think there's much argument there. And part of that is for real reasons that the for-profit world just has more money to spend. And you know, to use technology does cost money. So that's all true. Um, but I do think that you know there's other you know kind of dynamics. One of the reasons that that the business world has been so shaken up is not because the business, you know, the the, the legacy businesses like a Walmart or you know Chase Bank or you know General Motors, just to pick three companies, themselves wanted to do that. I mean, they they had they used technologies, they used big you know mainframe computers, and they were chugging along. What really shook up them um, was startups funded by venture capitalists that challenged those businesses. And you can just go up and down the line. The, um, there were, you know, Amazon's challenged Walmart, Tesla challenging General Motors, any number of, you know, kind of uh, financial uh, in organizations challenging um, the big banks, you know, and now you have bit, you know, cyber currency, et cetera. Um, Robin Hood and whatnot. Um, right. And that is what really disrupted things. And that's what accelerated their investments in technology. There isn't anything like that going on in the nonprofit world. But I won't say nothing, but but you don't have that kind of dynamic. You don't have investors, funders, uh, going in and creating new organizations that will disrupt the nonprofit world. Like, let's disrupt how environmental organizations are doing things or how food banks are doing things like we're all sort of you know we're all nice nice oh wait, who would want to do that right I mean we don't want to like but sometimes actually that's necessary that's a good thing I mean that's where I think markets actually function in interesting and important ways and in the nonprofit sector in some ways doesn't you know doesn't really function like you know kind of a market right and yep. in, in that in that way. And I think 
It, it should. I mean, and it's not entirely true. I mean, there are some examples, uh, Kiva, right? I mean, that was an example of an organization that came in and it really was a Silicon Valley startup um, mm-hmm. starting in Silicon Valley. They had the people that came there, uh, came from Stanford Business School and PayPal and others. And and they really kind of changed the way that money was going to uh, people in the developing world, you know, for lending and stuff. And yep. I'd like to see more of that, right? And so I mean that that's that's one thing. I do think I do think it's gotten better. I mean, we I was talking about cost. Um and so you know early on to embrace technology, to use technology, you had to kind of have your own IT people, you had to have your own computers, your own networks, you had people, you know, doing updates and all that. And with the cloud, you know, that that came in with you know, Salesforce maybe being, you know, the most obvious one, but, you know, Amazon, AWS, and things are moving to the cloud. That that does make it much easier and more cost-effective for nonprofits to use a lot of the technology that used to be just cost-prohibitive, right? Yes. If you were to do Salesforce on your own, right, to have a database and have a database map, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just would cost, you couldn't do it, right? But now you can just sit at your desk and do it. And and so I think that has led to important changes, but not enough. And, yep. and the reason why it's not enough is I think they don't, there's no fire under their feet. <laughs> well, I, I also think too, um, the sector doesn't do a, I think, a smart enough job of marketing what technology will do for them, right? So, you know, the pandemic ended up becoming something of an object lesson in the centrality of technology as opposed to something that fell into that that dreaded category of overhead that no one wants right. to fund. And I do believe, it's one of the things I see from my vantage point, is that the pandemic has offered so many case studies that the sector can be marketing the hell out of with funders to illustrate that technology is not over there. It actually has a seat at the table and is instrumental in building this engine for a nonprofit organization that can drive people to it, that can get people engaged, that can mobilize people, uh, that can allow uh, allow individuals to do those human relational tasks. I mean, all of that stuff, right? And so it seems to me that that's a, it's a little bit on, uh, on those folks who lead nonprofits to begin to really take what happened in the pandemic and reframe what technology is to funders who may still be stuck with a prior picture. And I, I love your example of Kiva for sure, but I'm also just talking about, you know, an organization can't build, can't be powerful without people and you don't find people and bring them to you without social media today. You just simply don't. That's not an, oh, by the way thing. That's, that's programs for me. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right, and you know, and and funders are in the in the nonprofit model, funder funders are somewhat at fault, right? Because of the way that they they fund, right? They this question of overhead and funding programs, not organizations, the way that the business world does. But I do think, as you said, that COVID COVID obviously had, and we're in the middle of it now still, um, <laughs> had many bad 
aspects. So one of the good things is that it did, I think, bring to the fore uh, the importance that technology plays. And and so, you know, without technology, many nonprofits, you know, you couldn't operate because people had to stay at home. Your the clients you were working with couldn't come into the office. You, I mean, just down the line, everyone's everyone knows the experience of this. And I, and you're right. I yes. think that we that distilling, you know, trying to then go back to the funders to say, look, you know, here's here's how technology was central to our ability to to survive and 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 then to thrive, right? And so. Help us do that. Hopefully, we'll see we'll see some of that and see some some of the results of that too. Yeah, and I think you're right. I, I do think so. Ford, as going back to Ford and leaders, and they're called leaders because they're leaders and people follow. Right? Pay attention to what good leaders are doing. Uh, that's an important piece of the puzzle here too. As a nonprofit leader, see what's out there. What are people doing that's really smart and and engage in those kinds of activities? But you know, Ford is you know, very big on unrestricted uh, grants and says, you know, I'm investing in this organization and its ability to have impact. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So we are actually talking with Eric Nee, who is the editor-in-chief of the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And we're talking about trends in the sector and sort of his vantage point, having both being a voice in SSIR and also uh, as an editor really curating thousands of contributors over the last 15 years who have had insights and have stirred up the pot and given readers aha moments, lots of food for thought. Let's talk a little bit and shift a bit and talk about the political landscape as a sector, obviously are live on this kind of political canvas, if you will. I just wonder if from your vantage point, having been at the helm for the last 15 years, sort of what kind of impact the political landscape has on the social sector? It seems to me that our world is more polarized than ever before, but perhaps you will, you can agree or disagree and what kind of an impact the social that has on the sector and what leaders uh, should be thinking about in that context. Yeah. Well, as I said, I mean, when I sort of in my teens and then college years and after very involved in politics, right. (laughs) That so politics has always been important to me. The big picture has always been important. Also, you know, I was, when I was younger, you know, Ronald Reagan came in and I won't say it's the same as today. I think there are certainly differences, but that was a highly polarized period too during the Vietnam War and Agnew and Reagan. And, but I do think one of the, let's say positive things about going through the Trump era and such is that I think it forced an awareness amongst people in the nonprofit sector that you don't live in a bubble that you right. you live in a society and within a you know within governments and 
a lot of things that you think and sort of take for granted can can be taken away. And, and that, I think, kind of woke people up. Now, of course, being a 501c3, you can't directly engage in, you know, electoral politics and all, but 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 there are other ways to do it. And at least, you know, and at a minimum being being aware. But I think, you know, as people probably know, but it's worth emphasizing that it's not just political polarization. It's not just like Democrats and Republicans. It's, it's I think, deeper than that. It's really kind of a deep cultural, social, and even geographic polarization. I mean, there's a lot of people that have done studies about how we've sort of sorted out. I don't, I don't know if there's terms for it, but, you know, right. neighborhood cities uh, used to be more diverse. Not I'm not talking here about race or gender, but diverse politically in terms of what people believed. Now that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, I'm sitting here in Palo Alto and we're like, you know, it's like overwhelmingly liberal, yeah. which, and that's one of the reasons right. I live here. But I don't come into contact with people, you know, in my daily life who are different than me. And that's the same on our conservatives. Right. And I think that just lends itself. So we're talking about geographic. We're also talking about, you know, social media. How do we get our media? I'm not the first person to talk about this, but that's been, yes. uh, we don't talk to each other that way either, right? Nobody watches, you know, uh, Walter Cronkite on CBS. There were a lot of problems with that. But one of the things that it did was kind of provide a moderating influence Today, it's like, you know, seeing it's MSNBC and Fox, right? And, the, the you know, the cultural different. So all this is to say that I think, you know, people point back, like I just did to like, you know, kind of the Reagan era. Well, I think one of the things that make, I think it's going to be more difficult to crawl out of it this time because of the, the fact that we don't, we don't, there aren't ways that we kind of come together much. And that is where I think the nonprofit sector can help. Because I think the nonprofits, uh, not all, yeah. but many nonprofits deal with issues that do cut across those differences. Food banks being an example, right? I mean, they're really, I don't think you have much argument between conservatives and liberals around food banks. Food banks serve communities, you know, sometimes big communities. And that's a place where people do come together, whether they're, you know, they believe in QAnon or they're some member of DSA. And that's a place where people can yeah. begin to talk, right? And like, how are we tackling a problem? It's kind of, I mean, now I mentioned it community organizing. That was, you know, one of the kind of the fundamentals yes. of community organizing. You find an issue, it's important to a community that, and you bring people together um, to tackle it. And through that process of them working together and, kind of trying to deal with an issue that they can come together around stuff. And, and in my case, the belief was that, you know, then they'd, they'd see the light and be socialists. And that's a whole nother question, but, but at least <laughs> we can, but I think for, for today, at least the, 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 the short-term goal would be to get people talking together again. And, and I, that, that's just, that is the first step that we have to take. And again, I think when you talk about, you know, health, and food and housing. I mean, I think these are things that when you get down to the very nitty gritty level that there's a general awareness amongst conservatives and liberals that those are important issues. And when you get very specific about how to tackle them, there's actually not as much difference between people as, as, as one might think. And that's kind of the place we can start. And nonprofits, I think, can be the vehicle for bringing us together again as a society. I like that very much, and I am reminded 
When I was part of the LGBT movement running an organization that, uh, as we were trying to, I, I like to say, trying to change hearts and minds in America about marriage equality, that our, I think originally there was, a, there was a framing that we talked about that it was a right that we did not have that we deserved, right? And that's one, and that's not wrong, and it's not inaccurate, but that that is actually not the framing that creates a universal context for that discussion. The framing that creates universal context for that discussion is values, is values-based, right? Do you not believe that, you know, who doesn't believe that people should be able to live happily ever after, right? When you get, and and I do think that, and and this is a you know sort of a torch that I carry a lot is is how do you talk about the work that you do, in a way that allows for a conversation of the kind you've just described. And yeah. we found, I mean, we certainly found that when we when we shifted that conversation to being one about that was values driven, that there were so many more things that brought people together than divided people. And I do think that that, that it is incumbent on the, and I think there is a unique responsibility and opportunity in the sector to be able to sort of march into those waters armed with that kind of more values-based conversation that really does have a universal kind of resonance. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And, and I think the marriage equality movement was one of the ones that's exemplary in, in being able to, to do that and did it by, as you said, kind of shifting the conversation, reframing it as, as we say. Hopefully that can happen around other issues. I mean, one would hope like, we could do that around climate change. I mean, yeah. when the, you know, the fires are in California are mostly burning down in rural areas where conservatives, you know, live. You'd think maybe that would be the opportunity to then talk about those, that question, right, um, in a different way. Yes. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who are, don't, actively don't want to do that and are kind of pouring fuel on the flame and we'll turn that into a polarization issue. COVID could have been a way for us to come together. Yes. Could have been. I mean, it, really, how could it not have been? But it wasn't. Yeah. It was actually a way to further divide us, right? So there's bad actors out there, yeah. right? That are, right. And, and I'm not trying to sound hopeless, but I think that's a challenge, right? Yes particularly today, but anyway. So um, so we just have a couple of more minutes left, and I'm thinking about, your again, your vantage point over these last 15 years, and I wonder if you might just riff a bit on what you think it takes to be a really strong leader in the nonprofit sector, and is that different today than it was 15 years ago when you moved from Fortune over to SSIR? Or is it, is it, does it remain constant in your head? I think there's some things that are constant. I mean, there's sort of the, the basics of management and running an organization that, that are there all the time. One of the reasons SSIR was started, and we were started at the business school at Stanford, was that the business school there believed that they had a role to play in helping enhance the management skills 
of uh, the nonprofit sector, which interesting because many of the people that come into the nonprofit sector, they came in through the issue, right? They cared passionately about something, then they start to do work on it, then they build an organization. And nothing wrong with that, but but often they didn't have any kind of background on, on how do you run something. So that was the belief. And I think that's still to some extent true. But I do think, you know, some of the things that have changed over the last 15 years, I mean, I think, well, first of all, the notion of, you know, leadership has has changed. We're talking about like, what is a leader? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's no longer, you know, kind of the, the top-down model, which 15 years ago was still pretty much the the primary model that, you know, what is a leader, you know, some person that had a commanding presence and all that. I think that's changed. It's more, you know, and people have put different names on this, but I think, you know, how you lead an organization, uh, it's it's not just through command and control anymore. Yep. You know, there is a great resignation or whatever you want to call it going on where people are like, I don't like working here. I don't like working for you and I'm leaving. Um, And I've seen that personally. And so that's real. So I think people have to change how they do lead, how they lead. I think organizations have to be much more agile in how they operate and how they think of what what they do. And then COVID has really shown, it's, it's always been true, but I think technology and COVID have both showed you really need to, to be agile and think of your organization as, you know, not as something that is just doing a set of programs, but back up and like, what is our mission, right? What is our purpose? And how do we do that? And being willing to change how you achieve that, mm-hmm. right? And not be stuck in that. And I think one could say, well, that's always true. Yes, but but I think it, it's certainly more true now than ever. So, you know, adapt, being willing to adapt, I think new leadership models. And and I do think a renewed focus on mission and purpose, because I, I think I think it's important for the, you know, the nonprofit sector, I think too often, I think we try to emulate the business world, right? Just like not that, you know, ROI and efficiencies, they, they are important, but what sets us apart. Right. It's not the, it's not that we just we can deliver food more efficiently. Of course, that that's important. But really, what is our mission? What is our purpose? I think that's yep. what just sets us apart from the for-profit world. And, and coupled with that, I think remembering that process can be as important as you know the, the end, right? Yeah. How do we do it? How do we work with people in our own organization? How do we work with the community in ways that enhance people's power, enhance people's sense of agency. I mean, we we are different or we can be different. Let me say right. that. And sometimes we, I think, forget that. And so that would be kind of one, one thing that I think is, is different and that I think, you know, we should do more to kind of lean into. I totally agree with you and also feel like the times have really, and the generational shifts have made that more of a mandate for the sector in that 
People come expecting to be heard. They expect their voices to be heard. They expect the community to be involved. There's there is a different kind of expectation. I think it's a tension between the folks who are at the you know at the helm who might be in their sort of later years and the younger individuals who come with these expectations. And you either. It seems to me, I've seen this with in my a lot of my coaching work, is you can either find it incredibly that it can be a source of tension in your organization, or you can actually just embrace it and say, "Okay, I don't uh, the, the the old model doesn't work. It, this is these are different." As a different generation of people, how do I create something different that works for everyone? And I do think that not beholden to the same you know, potentially to the same kinds of things that the business world is. It presents an opportunity, and this is maybe where a good place to leave it for a kind of mm-hmm. innovation that your publication works so hard to put out into the public square so that people can really see it and be prompted to think differently uh, about their organizations, about impact, about how they communicate, about technology, about race. This is what your organization is all about, and you do so well. And I'm very grateful for for your time and for for being at the helm and providing this kind of resource to nonprofit leaders so that they really have the opportunity to innovate in ways that really will impact their the kind of mark they leave. Well, thank you, Joan. I I really enjoyed our conversation and the opportunity to talk with you about some of these issues that that I do think are important and that we often forget about. And since we're, you know, it's around the new year when people are kind of stepping back, maybe, right, my new year's resolution. Um, I think it's a good time for people to be, you know, kind of thinking about these bigger questions about how they operate, what are they doing, how are they doing it, and why. And I am hopeful, right? I I am an optimist, uh, basically. And, you know, I think one of the things as challenging as the last couple of years have been, we've gotten through it, right? Yes. You know, so I think looking forward, I mean, I, I think, I do think this has provided us all an opportunity to kind of do better yes. in how we do the work. And so I'm I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the yep. 22. I, I agree with you. And I will just, uh, again, I will say that, you know, for All these years, right, that the SSIR has been around, you have carried the mantle of the word innovation, and the sector has not always stepped into that, has not always leaned into it, and it has taken a global pandemic for many organizations to lean into it in a way that, you know, it's sort of the what challenging times make possible, but they're getting a taste and a flavor for what innovation looks like, and I let's Here's here's hoping that that is um, that is a, a lasting. Um, uh, think about you know not lasting variants, but lasting impact on the sector instead. Um, and um, let's hope that's you know that stays with the sector and really does help it to shape and change in new and different ways. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Eric, and uh, uh, really appreciate your time and your leadership in the sector. And for all of you out there, thank you for your leadership in the sector. Take good care, stay healthy, and thank you for the work you do, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. 
Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.